And I was asked to speak about the subject of sin this morning. At first, I think my, my heart sank, and um, I thought, how am I going to do justice to this very serious subject? Um, how am I going to bring this in a way which would be helpful for us on a Sunday morning? You may be, if you're not a believer here, you may be thinking, why on earth do Christians keep on talking about sin? I'm sick of hearing about sin. It's so negative and pessimistic. And I've, I've come here to be built up. I've come here to be encouraged and, and inspired, perhaps. I don't want to hear about sin and all these things that Christians talk about. And why do we talk about this? Are we just trying to make people feel bad? Are we just self-righteous? That's, that's the accusation of the world against the church. You're just a, a bunch of self-righteous people who think you're better than everybody else. Is that true of us? Are we just sitting here in our little church in Brighton on this windy day, patting ourselves on the back and saying we're better than all those people out there who don't know God, who wouldn't think of being in a church on Sunday morning? I think the subject of sin is a complete turn-off for many people. It's not what they want to hear about. And even in many churches, they've abandoned speaking about these doctrines because it's simply not what, what people want to hear. But we talk about sin because it's important for people to know their condition before God. We talk about sin because we deeply care for people. In the same way that when you go to a hospital, you hear people talking about illnesses all the time. You think, my goodness, can't they talk about something else, these medical staff in the hospital? But the reason they talk about illness and sickness is that people might be healed, that people might be restored, that people might be healthy again to go back and live their normal lives free from these illnesses. What kind of hospital would it be if nobody were to talk about illness? The very purpose of a hospital is to talk about illness and to treat illness. And the purpose of a church is to treat men's primary problem, which is sin. If people do not know God's holy verdict against them, they will never run to a saviour. I see so much indifference in this city to the gospel. Present the gospel to people they they don't believe the church is anything at all that they need or want you could stand on london road you could give out i don't know pizza flyers or anything like that people would take them and be grateful when you talk about the gospel no thank you no thank you no thank you not for me i'm not religious people do not see this as important and urgent but i think if you if we were to grasp this doctrine and understand this we would go running, people would run into the arms of God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Suddenly the gospel becomes very, very, very relevant, very, very important. If we do not understand what God has saved us from, how on earth will we understand what grace means? And in a sense, the darker sin becomes and the more intense our understanding of how much we've disobeyed God the greater and brighter shines God's grace towards us 
And I put it to you this morning that you cannot possibly understand grace unless you understand what we are saved from and what God has done for us. The book of Romans is an amazing book. Paul was a Jewish rabbi, a learned man, who had learned to put no trust at all in his own learning or righteousness. He systematically goes through the human race and chops down and demolishes every single pretension, every single argument, with one purpose, which is to prove that Jew and Gentile, all humanity, are guilty and under sin. And then he preaches the grace of God and the solution, the only solution to that predicament. I want to ask a question this morning based on this chapter we read, this passage we read in Romans. first question I want to ask is this, how widespread is sin? I'm, I'm taking it that you all understand what sin is. Sin is disobedience to God, the breaking of God's commands. How widespread is sin? 100%, 100%, thank you, you've nailed it. I want you to look at the, the words that are spoken in this chapter. So, Annie, could you get them up, please, on the screen? What does it say? Jews and Gentiles alike, all under sin. Jews and Gentiles are the two classes of humanity. There is nobody else excluded from that. Jews and Gentiles, that encompasses the whole of the human race. They're all alike under sin. The next one. There is no one righteous, not even one. Next one. There is no one who understands. Look at the words Paul uses. No one. All alike. Next one. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Notice how comprehensive this list is. Nobody at all is excluded by this. And Paul is not just talking about the people of his day. He's not talking about a particular group of people. He's talking about the human condition. And this applies to all people at all times in all cultures At every point in history, this includes them. They are encompassed by this. All are under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. Paul says, just a few chapters on in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we were to say this morning, if Paul were here with us this morning, we were to say to him, well, Paul, you're wrong. That's not true. There are many righteous people in the world. Paul would say, no, I mean this to include everybody, every single person, Jew, Gentile, rich or poor, wherever they live, they're all included in this. Because, dear friends, all of us, every single human being is descended from Adam and all of us inherit the sin of Adam passed on to us. We were steeped in sin at birth and that means we have a natural inclination to sin and not to seek God. Because we all come from Adam and death entered the world and sin entered the world through that one man. We are all his children. Some people look at the problems in the world and they think the solution is to educate people better. 
They said, with more education, we could change the hearts of people, we could help people, we could help people live better, there would be less conflict in the world. Some people say, perhaps if we gave people better living conditions and better life circumstances, they would not do these bad things anymore. That everybody would live in peace and harmony. And you'll find many people that believe that, that by human means, people can be improved and society can be improved. Now, I think in God's common grace, of course, education, helping people to understand the enormity of what they do, the consequences of that, can actually improve society to an extent. But it cannot heal the deep and abiding problem of the human heart. If that were true, if people only did bad things because of the circumstances in which they found themselves, then there would be people in the world who would be completely good and would never do anything wrong. And Paul says, no, that's not true. Every single person is included. Even moral people and religious people, every single person is is encompassed by this list. There is no one righteous. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17, the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Isn't that the truth, dear friends? There are things in your heart that only you know about which you would be utterly ashamed of if other people could see those thoughts. I know that's certainly true about me. All of us, and only us, know the wickedness of our own hearts. And yet, I think the Lord would say to us, it's far more serious than that. It's far more serious than you can envisage. At the time of Noah, God saw how the wickedness on the earth had proliferated. And God was grieved by that. And it says this in Genesis. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And once again, I don't think that that was just peculiar to that particular time. I think that is the the indictment of the human condition. That the, the wickedness of our hearts is what causes sin. And Jesus said that, didn't he, as well? He said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The wickedness that's poured out of people's hearts stems from within. So the Bible, Paul takes great pains to include every single person, every single person that's ever lived in this list. And he says that sin is universal. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you and I ought to be very concerned about that because it says clearly that evildoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says this, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm assuming this morning that you want to inherit the kingdom of God. You want to be in heaven. You want to be saved. But because we're all wicked, we're all sinful, that is not possible. Jesus said on that day of judgment that people will stand before him who had actually done miracles in his name and spoken for him as though they were his spokesman. And he'll say to them, depart from me, go away from me, I never knew you. You workers of iniquity, you, you evildoers. 
maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not a believer and you think this, this can't possibly apply to me. I'm not a bad person. I pay my taxes. I love my children. I help people. I'm a good person. Someone said this, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And if you're the kind of person that's sitting here and you think that you're righteous and you think that other people are bad but you're good, and somehow it's somebody else's problem, I advise you to go to the word of God and meditate and ponder the holiness of God righteousness of God, the justice of God, the, the, the majesty of God. Think about the, the moral purity of God and the kindness of God towards us. I think if we're honest, if we compare ourselves with this, we do not show up favorably, do we? All of us have broken God's law. All of us have spurned his purity. All of us have turned our back on his goodness. And it says that, doesn't it, in Romans 3. It says here in verse 12, all of us have turned away. This reminded me very much of Isaiah 53, verse 6. Where it says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And this, dear friends, this is the human condition. Every single person has, whether they've consciously done it or not, turned away from God, turned their backs on him and said, no, I want to live my life my way with no regard to you. Please leave me alone. Let me get on with it. Now, of course, there are people that come to God when they want something, but the rest of the time they completely ignore him. Every single one of us has turned our back on God. Every single one of us has turned away from him. I find the words in verse 12 quite striking. They together have become worthless. And that would make a few people angry, I can tell you. Worthless, unprofitable, useless. Now, I don't want, I don't want you to think that means that human beings have no dignity. We are God's creation. We are made in the image of God, and that image has been twisted and defiled, but we are still precious. As human beings, we have a, have, a, have a kind of innate dignity as human beings. It's not saying that people are utterly worthless. They can just be dispensed of. The picture here is of, let's just imagine a big, nice basket of fruit full of lovely, exotic fruits that you can buy in that nice greengrocer down London Road. I don't even know what they are, some of them. In my day, it was apples and oranges and bananas. Now, it's all kinds of weird and wonderful things and Lovely things. Imagine you've got this great big basket of fruit. What a nice thing that is. If somebody put one on your doorstep, a basket of fruit like that, you think, oh, this is wonderful, wouldn't you? You bring it in and put it on the kitchen table and you help yourself over the week and enjoy it. But imagine if you left it, you went on a holiday, you came back and that, that bowl of fruit had become a festering mess of rotten fruit. Would you be so delighted? What would you do with it? Throw it on the compost heap or just chuck it out, wouldn't you? It would be of no good whatsoever. 
That's the picture actually here, sort of something going rotten, something being corrupted. So human beings, we still, we still bear the image of God. You can still see the trace of that. But in a sense, we've become corrupted. We've become worthless. We no longer are able to live up to the dignity for which we were created. You look at that fruit, you can still, still trace the fruit. You can you see an image of its glory, what it was once, but it is no longer. And it's no longer to, good for anything except to be discarded and thrown out. And that, dear friends, that is the, the human condition, isn't it? That in God's sight, we've become worthless. That doesn't mean we're not important to God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about us. It doesn't mean that God isn't merciful to us, but it means that we've become corrupted. And let's be honest. Let's look at the human race. It's, it's obvious to see that, isn't it? We look around us. We see many good things. We see people trying hard to help improve society, but we do see corruption and rottenness. You think people just abuse the the dignity that God has given them. Look at verses 16 and 17. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Isn't isn't that what sin does to people? Ruins people, ruins societies, ruins nations, and it ruins lives. It brings misery to people. People that sin and live in sin are not happy people. They may appear to be happy in a way, but actually they're they're corrupting themselves, ruining their lives and ruining the lives of other people. The way of peace they do not know. Those who pursue a life of sin will never know peace. True peace, the peace that God offers. Let me ask, ask you another question this morning. You know, you may be a very moral and righteous person in your own eyes, but comparing yourself to the holy God of the Bible, do you see that you and I both fall very far short of his glory, of his standards, of his majesty? The first step to salvation is to agree with God's verdict about us. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. That's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit, he takes a heart of a person that is is opposed to God and dead to God and steeped in sin, and the Holy Spirit brings that person under conviction. That somehow that sin that they've committed no longer becomes something which they justify and, and gloss over, but rather becomes a big problem for them because the Holy Spirit has pinpointed that and they become concerned about their soul. Say, so, my goodness, I, I wasn't concerned about this before. I didn't even think this was a sin. But now I realize I, I've offended God. What am I going to do about it? That's what I pray for. That's what I pray for every time I go to London Road and speak to people, try and speak to people. That's what I pray for when I speak to a mixed congregation of people, that the Holy Spirit would wake people up to sin. Take away that veil of self-righteousness. It says, I'm a good person, I'm good enough. It says, no, I'm not good enough, I need a saviour. I'm desperately in need. 
when that person comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, suddenly the gospel becomes of, of infinite importance. There's nothing more important than this than being right with God and being reconciled to God and having peace with God. So I've already, I've already made the case that, well, Paul's made the case that sin is universal, that every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person is facing his wrath, his judgment. Every single person has turned away from him. I want to ask the question, how serious is sin? So, okay, we, we all know that we all do wrong. We've all done something wrong in our lives. But just how serious, how deeply rooted is sin? Some people may object to this and say, well, you know, Roman, Paul may say that there is none that does good. But actually, I know lots of people that do good. Especially in a city like Brighton, you find here there's a, there's a big social conscience amongst people. And lots of caring people do caring things. People care about the community. People care about um, disadvantaged people. There are people who work in the hospital and they work hard because they care for people. People give their time to support charities and money and other things like that. Surely there are good people in the world. Surely you're overstating the case about sin. And of course... Praise the Lord that people are still capable of doing good things. This is what we call God's common grace. God enables sinful people to still do things which are good and helpful. There's not a single person, I I believe, in this world who is as bad as they could possibly be. Think about the... You know, the, the epitome, the worst kind of sinner that people can imagine in their mind. Perhaps, I don't know, Hitler or somebody. That seems to be a byword, doesn't he, for, for a, a really sinful person. But I, I'm sure that even Hitler wasn't as bad as he possibly could have been. I'm sure he loved his mother. I'm sure he did some good things. So even with a man like that, God did not let him go to the full extent of his sin. There was a restraining power of God that God stopped him from going to the full extent, even though he went very, very far down that road. And that is true for every single human being to a greater or lesser extent. God restrains our sinful urges and enables us to do good so that society can continue. Imagine how hellish the world would be if God let us all give free reign to our sin. We'd be killing each other, there would be no law, Nobody would have any inclination to help each other at all. We would just murder each other. Terrible things would happen. But God in his mercy has enabled people to still do good things, as it were, to help people. That society might continue. That the gospel might still be preached. You and I both know that human beings have the capacity to destroy this world many times over. During the Cold War, this world was on a knife edge. Within, within minutes, we could have all been consumed in a kind of nuclear holocaust. And it came very close at times. And God restrained that. God did not allow that to happen. You know, the death of millions, if not billions of people. And God allowed that, us to continue as a race that the gospel might be preached and that people might still be saved.
even the good, the good that people, people still do is a testimony to God's grace, that God made this world to be good and it's not completely ruined, although, in fact, every part of it is tainted by sin. I want to ask you another question today. So you, you, you claim that people do good things. Well, I agree, people do do good things in this world. Even sinful people do good things. But just how good are those good things that people do? Just how good are those things really? If you were to examine the motives of people who do good things, those people that run marathons for charity, I've, I've always uh, dreamed about running a marathon, but it's never going to happen. But some people do. And they do it for good motives because they want to raise money and help people. But if you could see inside the hearts of people, what would be their motives? And I want to put it to you that all of us, and I know myself, that I'm like this. We all have mixed motives, don't we? And sometimes our motives are less than pure. When you do good to other people, it often brings you a sense of self-satisfaction, doesn't it? That, you know, I've done something good, pat, pat myself on the back. You know, wasn't I a good person today? When you do good to other people, often there's an element of public recognition, isn't there? You know, I do this because I care for these people, but also I want people to pat me on the back and applaud me and put my, my picture in the Argus, presenting my cheque to charity. Well done. Verily, you did good, my son. So you see, sometimes the motives, if we were to truly examine ourselves and be honest, are not 100% pure. We're not just doing this because we care about other people. We're doing this because we, we want to gratify ourselves in some way. Perhaps we do it because we want to see, see ourselves as superior to other people. Look how caring I am compared to those other people that don't do anything at all. Which of us can claim that our motives are always 100% selfless? We're doing this just because we care for other people for no other reason at all. There's another issue, isn't there? So let's forget about our motives for a moment, but what about the purpose of why we are doing these good things? There's a much bigger issue. If we were created, which we were, by God for his glory, to live for him, to, to walk in a relationship with him, to serve him, to use our, our creative powers and the intellect he's given us and our gifts and talents, if we were to use them for him, for his glory, if that's God's intention, then if we are not doing those things for the glory of God, then those things are actually worthless, ultimately. Romans 1 verse 21 says this, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is a big problem, isn't it? Because people may do many good things, but actually they refuse to give glory to God. I think Paul would say that's at the root of all human rebellion, is a refusal to give glory to God, refusal to give thanks to him. It says, doesn't it, their, their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. We might give our best efforts, our energy, our talents to help people, to do good in this world, to develop a cure for cancer, to whatever it might be, to make beautiful music. 
to produce wonderful art, to, to run a business that employs hundreds of people, to raise a family. We might do all those things. Using the talents that God has given us, using the strength that God has given us, but, but giving God no glory whatsoever and not doing it for his glory and doing it with no regard to him. And, dear friends, on the day of judgment, when we stand before God, we can present all these things to him as much as we like. If we're not a believer, we haven't been reconciled to God. All those things ultimately will be wasted. I mean, um, Phil gave me a very good illustration of this. I think it comes from C.S. Lewis, where you talk about two ships. And um, one one ship is very, very um, well run, and it's clean, and... It's got, you know, lovely stuff on it. And it's, uh, the crew are lovely, you know, dressed in nice uniforms and they're running the ship very, and they, it, you know, runs to schedule and it, all these things. And that ship is beautiful to look at. You think, what a wonderful ship. But that ship is a pirate ship. And those men who, who, who work on that ship, although they may be using their talents and abilities to make that ship run and do its business, that business is not a good business. And it's not the king's ship. The problem is we're in the wrong realm, aren't we? We're not a believer. We're, we're doing, doing things in the realm of this world and not for the glory of God. And I think that's a very sad thing. Recently, I, I watched an evangelistic course um, someone was putting on, and it talked about sin, in my opinion, very lightly. And it said, sin is the bad things that we do in our lives, the things that hurt other people. Well, that's certainly true, isn't it? But sin is far more than just the bad things that we do. I think the truth is, according to the Bible, actually, before we became a believer, everything we did was, in a sense, sinful. Not that everything we did was wrong. I mean, it's it's right to look after your children and pay your taxes. But the truth is that we've never done anything truly good, have we? It's not just we've we've made a few slip-ups and a few mistakes. Nothing we've done has been truly good. Everything's been tainted by sin. Every part of us has been tainted by sin. Before I was a believer, what a mess I was in. The way my thoughts were sinful, my affections were sinful, my ambitions were sinful. I mean, they were mixed with other motives as well, but they were all tainted by sin, polluted by sin. When there was a flood in Lewis many years ago, um, a flood just took over the whole town. Flooded shops and businesses, libraries and homes. And that flood water was mixed with, with effluent sewage coming up from the drains, from the sewers. And that sewage contaminated every single part of that town. You went to the bookshop and the books on the top shelf hadn't been touched by the flood waters and yet the, somehow they'd been contaminated. The whole stock had to be burned and destroyed because it had been contaminated. Uh, I don't think I'm overstating the case. That's what the Bible would say about the human heart. It's desperately wicked. And every part of us, our body, our soul, is completely tainted by sin. There's nothing that a sinner can do to win God's approval. There's nothing that anybody can do to make themselves right with God by doing good things. Some people may object to this and say, well... It says here, there is no one who seeks God. 
Is that really true? There are 4,000 religions in this world, at least 4,000 different kinds of religions, some very weird and wonderful ones. So how can you possibly say, Paul, that no one seeks God? Surely people are seeking God in their own way. Surely there are many that seek God. There's this kind of idea, isn't there, that, some, that everybody in this world would believe in the Lord Jesus if only they knew about him. I've heard someone say that before. This city is full of people that would believe in the Lord Jesus if they knew about him. Well, I, I wish that were true. The truth is that nobody truly seeks God. And I can prove it to you. It, in Athens, Paul preached, and he saw that the, temp, the city was full of idols. And he saw a temple to an unknown God. Because the people there were so religious, they were concerned they might have forgotten about some particular God. They might have offended him, so they built an altar just in case they'd forgotten one of the gods. And they had many gods. And Paul preached to them. He used the opportunity to preach about the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to proclaim what was unknown to you, I'm going to proclaim to you. And he preached to them about the living God. And you might have thought, well, all those people will be glad to receive the Lord Jesus and believe in the true God. But it says that some sneered, many sneered and mocked Paul and rejected the message. But some believed. It's not just a matter of ignorance that people just don't know about the true God. Paul says in Romans 1, what may be known about God is plain to people. There's a certain knowledge about God that is evident from nature and creation that testifies to God, to the presence and the existence of God. But it also says this, that people exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Man is a religious creature but he does not seek the true God. He would seek any God, any other God, apart from the true God. And he particularly likes gods that are made in his own image, gods which he can can control, which make no demands upon him. And these gods are idols, created things, powerless things, useless things. And people's hearts crave after these gods. And that's why you only have to walk through the North Lane and see all these, these weird Shops selling crystals and offering every kind of spirituality under the sun. And that's not a manifestation of people seeking God. That is a manifestation of people rejecting God and seeking idols and falsehood. God created humans to worship him, to love him, to walk with him, to serve him, to obey him, to desire him above all things. But our hearts naturally are opposed to him. We will not come in the way that he prescribes. Naaman, that general that David told us about, he would have done anything. If it had been a very difficult thing, he would have done it. But he refused to wash in the river. It's just the same with the gospel, isn't it? If I, if I said to people, you need to, you need to climb up Mount, Mount Everest, people would do it. You'd find people that are willing to do that to find God. You tell them to believe in Jesus Christ, they don't want to know.
Ephesians 2 says this, and this is, this is a, a stark indictment of the human condition. It says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You were born, and I were born dead in our sins, unable to relate to God, unable to seek God, unwilling to seek God, unwilling to even understand or incapable of understanding who God is. That's why it says here, there is none that understands. Spiritual knowledge, the knowledge of the true God, a desire to seek him for who he is and to love him, is elusive and impossible for us in our natural state. We are dead spiritually. You talk to people, there are people in your family, there are your colleagues who are not believers, you will talk to them. You could beg with them, plead with them to receive the Lord Jesus. And they will not respond because there's a deadness there. Utter deadness, and lack of interest, lack of concern about their souls. And that is true for every single person, Whatever, however it manifests itself, whether in open hostility or just in indifference, people are dead in their trespasses and sins. Their desires are, are in bondage. They cannot escape from this trap. But having said all that, there is none that seek God. We know, don't we, that some do seek God. The Bible calls people to seek God. Look at this in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon there's a verse in Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord, and he will, I'm sorry, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. So God himself is making this appeal to people, and even, even this command to people, seek me, seek me and I will be found. Turn from your ways, forsake your sin, turn to me, believe, and you will find mercy. But Romans says that nobody does this. Nobody seeks God. So we have this dilemma. God calls people to seek him, to turn to him, to believe in him, to trust in him for salvation. People do not do this. And yet, by God's grace, there are people that seek God. There are people that turn to him. There are people that believe in him and come to him and find forgiveness. And you might ask yourself the question, why am I a Christian this morning? Why am I a believer why did I seek God? What was it in me that made me seek God? When Romans says this is impossible and it doesn't happen. When Paul was preaching in Athens, this, this really struck me when I was a young Christian, this verse. So often we present the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as an invitation to people. Come and invite Jesus into your life. That is not a biblical way of presenting the gospel. It is an invitation, but it's also a command. Paul says this, God now calls all men everywhere to repent. And if it's a command, God is asking us to do something, to take a step of obedience. But if the human heart is, is radically depraved and dead to God, how on earth can people obey this command? If 
If we're Christians here this morning because we've obeyed God, because we've obeyed his command, there's some credit in that for us. We're entitled to boast. Look at us. We're much better than these other people. There must have been something in us which was more sensitive or more moral or more intelligent that we understood this need to repent and we obeyed God. Aren't we wonderful compared to those people out there who refuse to do this? Are we the exception to the rule in Romans chapter 3? Are we the ones that do seek God because we somehow are different from the rest? Why is it that you could have 100 people in the room hearing the gospel, and one person or two people respond and believe in the Lord Jesus, and the other 98 or 99 refuse to believe and turn away in disgust and disbelief? What makes those two people different, those that respond? Is it because they have a greater capacity to understand spiritual truth and receive spiritual truth? Are they naturally more predisposed to obey God? Why do some believe and others don't believe? Why do, in a family of five children, why do two believe and and the others don't believe in Jesus? What is it that makes us different? The answer is, and this is the good news, is that God does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And this is... This is the most glorious truth, that God is the God who saves people who cannot save themselves. He doesn't just make it possible for them to be saved, but he actually fully saves them to the limit and brings them in. It says in 1 Corinthians, Paul asks this question, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? The truth is, there is no good in any of us. There's nothing in us to make us seek God. There's nothing in us that could have pleased God. But God has done something for us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We read that bit. The second part of that verse is this, that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's only one man who ever lived who wasn't included in this category in Romans, the one who never disobeyed God even for a moment. There's only one man who, who did understand, who was righteous, fully righteous. There was only one man who always fully obeyed God, who sought God, who loved God. Now, of course, was the Lord Jesus. Because of that, he was qualified, wasn't he, to die as an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that takes away sin, to be punished to receive the judgment that we deserve for breaking God's commands. You say, oh, I've heard that a thousand times. May we always rejoice in this. The Lord has done something for us. He sent his son. He didn't deserve anything to be judged that we might be forgiven. But that's, that's all well and good because the Lord has done that and the Lord Jesus has died that Whoever puts their faith in him and believes in him will be saved and righteousness will be accredited to them and they'll be justified in the sight of God and their sins will be forgiven. But that won't help people in itself because people are dead in their sins. People will not seek God. People will not obey. They're unwilling and unable to seek God and to respond to the gospel. 
They cannot perform this step of obedience to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and believe in him, even though it's in their own interest to do that. So God does get one more act of mercy. First of all, he sends his son, the Lord Jesus, and then he does something else. You know, I mentioned in Ephesians, it talks about people being dead in their trespasses and sins. Paul says this, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. God's holy, righteous anger against sin. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. So we have this wonderful thing that whenever the gospel is preached to sinful people like us, God, in his grace and mercy, takes those dead, cold, hard hearts. He pours out his Holy Spirit into those hearts and he brings spiritual life and rebirth. You've heard the term born-again Christian. You must be born again. You You won't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And that involves the Holy Spirit coming into your heart, giving you a new nature, a nature which seeks God, a nature which loves God, which, which is inclined to obey God which understands, which has spiritual comprehension, the capacity to understand the word of God and the gospel. And that is what God has done for many people in this room. He has given you the gift of spiritual life. He's, you may have thought that you were, seeing, you, were, you were seeking God. I thought that when I was, when I was um, coming to the law for the first time, that I was seeking him. I came to realize, actually, in reality, he was seeking me. Because I would never, ever would have sought him in truth, unless he'd done that work for me. What can we conclude from this? And let me just say this, if you've, if you've misunderstood anything I've said today, please come talk to me afterwards about it. I'd love to talk about it and um, hope I haven't confused anyone. But these are my conclusions based on this. Yes, the situation is desperate for people. Yes, every part of us is corrupted by sin. Yes, we are unable to seek God in ourselves. But God is the one who saves. Let us make sure that we give God all the glory for saving us. Let's not become proud. We here are no better than anybody else, are we? It's not because we were more righteous that God has saved us. It's all by grace. We Christians need to, need to avoid self-righteousness and pride. We are just sinners saved by grace, that God has called into his kingdom as a sovereign act of kindness and mercy. We are no better than anybody else. But let us be sad, saddened by the lostness of human beings, fellow human beings, people just like us who are lost. Let us be grieved by that. Let us be bothered by that. Let us be motivated to pray and to witness Because these people need the gospel. And by God's grace, when they hear that gospel, some of them will be saved. And as a church, let's not not be reluctant. Let's not be squeamish about talking about sin. We need to talk about the love of God. We need to talk about the grace of God. Let's let's be careful we don't have these unbiblical invitations to the gospel, to, to, to Jesus. It's not just who wants to go to heaven or who wants Jesus to be their friend. These people need to know their lost condition. May God give us great grace 
and winsomeness and gentleness, to, t- to talk about this with people in a way which is not offensive in itself, in the way that we present it. The gospel may be offensive, but we should not be offensive in the way we put it across to people. So I'm, I'm a sinner just like you, but I've been saved by grace. But we do need to talk about sin. We do need to deal with the hearts of men properly. And that will make us unpopular. Not everybody will want to hear this. Some people will go away and say, how dare you judge me? They'll fundamentally disagree with this verdict. We say we can, we can say no other. This is the word of God. Trust in the grace of God to save as well. The Bible makes it clear that God is willing to save people. That's what he's about. He saves. He's a God who saves. And the Bible makes it clear that God will save people. There will be this number, this great number that no one can count, that God brings in. There are no easy or hard cases for God. You might think that person in my family is never going to believe the gospel. It's absolutely impossible. It it is impossible with man, but not with God. All things are possible with God. We don't know whether he'll save them or not, but we we don't lose hope and give up. There are no easy cases either. God can save the hardest sinner. So we must pray and we must be confident that God will save people. I think we can all be grateful this morning, if we're Christians, that God has saved us, despite our lost condition, that he's brought us into his kingdom the kingdom of the Son he loves and he's given us grace. And if you're not a believer here this morning, I pray that God will prick your conscience with a a sense of your lostness. You might have been an extremely moral person. You might say, well, I've, I've got no problem with God and God's got no problem with me. I've lived a good life. The truth is, dear friend, you have fallen short, as we all have, of God's holy standards. You're heading for a terrible judgment if you don't turn. But God offers grace to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Lord, thank you for helping us this morning. I pray that my friends here will have got something from this. Lord, the human race is in a terrible mess. But Lord, you are so, so gracious that you would still even today save people. You hold out your hands, you offer the gospel to people that they might believe and be saved. So Lord, we pray that you would do that work, that many, many more would come in, would turn away from their sin, and that you would, you would bring your spirit to bear upon their lives in powerful ways, that they might be truly converted and changed from within. They might be justified and reconciled to you. In Jesus' name, amen.